So when Pastor Kevin asked me to share my reaction to the question of this series, Why Jesus? My short answer uh, is that it's his life and his teachings, more so than just his death on the cross, that keep me a Christian. Two short stories come to mind uh, that, that really kind of illustrate that for me, and I want to share those with you now. Uh, it's under the theme that I'm just going to call the, the wrong emphasis. The wrong, the wrong emphasis. All right. <clears throat> Story number one. Before coming to Spark, I grew up in an immigrant, conservative, multilingual, Asian family church uh, over here. It started in Mountain View and has moved, since moved to North San Jose. In many ways, I was considered something of a church success story. Um, I was active in the youth group, and then I went off to college. I came back to this church. I began serving in ministry as a deacon. I met my wife. We started a family there. In short, I was basically what many immigrant Christian uh, parents would want for their children. For those of you that speak Mandarin Chinese, there's a, there's a short phrase that kind of encompasses th this idea uh, that I heard a lot when I was growing up. Um, it goes like this. Guai xiao hai. Guai xiao hai. Okay? Essentially, that means a proper, obedient child who does kind of what he's supposed to do and, uh, and doesn't make a fuss. Right? That's kind of like what I was. However, while nearing the end of our second decade as members and leaders of this church, um, Shally and I, we kind of started growing more and more disenchanted with the community culture that we were a part of, and we were trying hard to change, but it wasn't really moving anywhere. It was a culture that didn't invite questions. It didn't invite uh, wrestling with faith in order to grow and to be better and to see how to live more like Jesus in our modern world and our modern context. <clears throat> and instead, it, it squashed inquiry and require, uh, required conformance to a narrative um, of what being a good Christian meant for the sake of the children. You know, that's a short way of kind of putting it. Relevant modern topics like economic justice, racial justice, reproductive justice, and gender identity, climate change, faith and science, gun control, all of these were considered divisive and unprofitable compared to evangelism, missions, and children's and youth ministry. Yes, community and harmony and unity can all be beautiful things and Christ-like values, but prioritizing what felt to us like a false harmony over figuring out what Jesus was trying to speak and do in each of these areas that were kind of unsettling to our souls, it felt like it was trying to live out a faith with the wrong emphasis. Okay? This ended up being the reason why we left our church at the beginning of 2019. Story number two. Theology-wise, many of us who have been Christian or in the church for a while may have been presented with a gospel that went something like this. Because of our own moral shortcomings, i.e. sin, we are destined for an eternity in a fiery hell without God when we die. Because he is holy and he is wrathful and he cannot abide us unless we believe and accept that Jesus' death on the cross has saved us. This is a presentation that I've heard cynically referred to as divine fire insurance. Again, while there may be some truth in this gospel, and even while I was teaching this gospel, something about it didn't quite sit right with me. It was another wrong emphasis. At my old church and many churches that I've been to, Christian life was essentially boiled down to 
make sure you get your divine fire insurance for yourself and your spouse and your kids. And then once that's settled, here's how you can become healthy, wealthy, and wise and raise Guai Xiaohai. As our children became old enough to think and to talk about faith, this just didn't feel like good news anymore. The main disconnect was that when I read Jesus' own words in the gospel books, the gospel he was preaching was basically, the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is Lord. Follow him and follow his ways. This, to me, places the emphasis back where it should be. On a God and king who, number one, cares about the imago Dei, the image of God in every person as a child of God. Number two, cares about people's whole beings in this life as much, if not more, than in the afterlife. Number three, a God and king who prioritizes reconciliation and restoration over retribution. And number four, embodies countercultural and oh-so-challenging principles of the kingdom of God, like loving our enemies, nonviolence, and using power to empower those who don't have any. These were all principles of the kingdom that just felt like the right emphasis. So my family and I are appreciative that Spark is so focused on the way of Jesus, and we're eager to continue figuring this stuff out together. Thank you. Thank you, Bob, so much, and Shally, and for finding us um, and, and bringing your whole self here too, to Spark. And we're so grateful for, you, for the four of you and for all that we continue to learn from one another. Thank you for sharing. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity to come together to continue to wrestle and to ask, why you? Why are we here? Why are we continuing to seek your face? And Jesus, we ask right now that as we gather here in this place and we grow closer to you, that we would continue to grow closer to one another, that your presence would open up our senses to who you are and what you're doing here and continue to enliven our hearts that they might grow warm within us as we're in this place together with you and with one another. Continue to guide us and bring more of your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. All right, so this is, hi, I'm Pastor Danielle, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Spark. And this is my first time jumping into the Why Jesus series, and I felt like, well, fair enough. Um, I should probably have to answer that question, too, since I'm one of the pastors here at Spark. Why Jesus? And tonight, our sermon's going to be titled, um, Because He's Making All Things New. It's appropriate, and we did not plan this, but as we were kind of looking at the Why Jesus series, at least I don't think Pastor Kevin was considering the liturgical calendar found in the Catholic and Lutheran Church, were you, when you were planning out the series, for personal transformation, being here for our Why Jesus conversation. But this weekend, it is the Feast of St. Paul. And it is the Feast of St. Paul's conversion. It remembers the Apostle Paul um, becoming, as we've all... Oh, good. Thanks. It's my, I have a backup crew that came, comes with me, travels with me everywhere I go. Thank you. Is that working better? That's better for him because he's going to have to you know, edit the podcast later. So make it his life better. Right? That was, that was very self-serving. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> a lot of us, when we've... <laughs> a lot of us, when we've considered the Apostle Paul and we think about his teachings, many of us were told that Paul was Saul, 
Saul bad, Paul good. Um, This nice little Bible craft sort of illustrates what Saul looks like versus Paul, right? Saul always frowned, but you just flip him around. He finds Jesus and he's got a big smile. And that the, you know, children's minister in me abhors the instructions at the top, which is when I make a mistake, heavenly father invites me to change. Sure. Um, color the figures and cut them out and attach the figures to the appropriate sides of a different size stick to make a puppet. And then like the puppet, you can tell the story of Paul and explain that after his conversion, Saul became known as Paul. That's not in your Bible, but, um, it is true that he goes by both names, but anybody else taught that God changed Saul's name to Paul? Anyone taught that? Yeah, it doesn't say that. It's very frustrating. But welcome again, anyway, to the Feast of uh, St. Paul. And we will be thinking and talking about personal transformation and how Jesus makes all things new, which he did for, for Saul, Shaul, and Paul, Paulus. He had a Hebrew and a Roman name, very common in the day, similar to what a lot of us do today. Well, Jesus changed my life um, some time ago, and I thought I'd share a little bit about that. I remember wanting to be baptized in the Lutheran church. My parents raised us in a Lutheran church where we were expected, I think most of us expected us to baptize your infants. That's most typical in the Lutheran church. My parents did not want us to be baptized as infants. They wanted us to make our own decision. So when I was 13 years old and I wanted to get baptized, I stood awkwardly with my entire middle school self, pretty sure I had a home perm, glasses, and braces, um, and stood next to a very tiny baptismal font and leaned over like this, which I'd only seen babies have done for them my entire life in that church, next to my sister and my father, who all did the same. And we all leaned a little bit like this, and the pastor put some water on her head, and it was really special. And that water mixed with the aquanet that was going on was awesome, right? So anyone who thinks I did not make a public confession of faith in Jesus did not watch all of the risk that my middle school self took on being the only weird gangly giant person that had ever gotten, tried to fit into that tiny little baptismal bowl at that church. I've since um, been able to be in the River Jordan several times, which is amazing. So now it all counts. I've done like the sprinkle and the dunk. Anyone who was concerned that I was not fully saved and I had not acquired my fire insurance um, can be, you can relax. I've done both. So I'm covered from all standards. We're all good. Um, That church is right here on your left. Bethlehem Lutheran Church up in Santa Rosa. And it was definitely part of my growing up experience that I don't think I ever knew a time where I didn't experience or have some sort of understanding of the love of God. My mom told us that the reason why we went to the Lutheran Church was because of the grace. Um, That we could just basically, no matter what, we were always getting that God loves you. It's okay. God forgives you. It's all going to be okay. It's because of the grace, because of the grace, because of the grace constantly. I asked her why we couldn't go to the other church that was one block closer. The other church, my church was just two blocks away, but the one block made a big difference, you know, when you're a kid. Why not, can we go the one block closer that my best friend also went to? And my mom's answer was because of the grace. We're going to continue to go to this church because of the grace. So my whole life growing up, I went to a place that felt very much actually like this place. It was warm and friendly. We had to sit in pews and we weren't allowed to talk. And there was maybe some pinching going on when you talked a little bit. But but mostly, 
It was warm and friendly and loving, and it shaped and grew me. And then when I was in fifth grade, I think much because my, um, my amazing aunt was like, I think that girl should go to a, um, a like, actual evangelical Christian experience. Um, I went to Mount Hermon Redwood Camp with counselors that kind of looked like that in that top picture because it was the 80s. Um, and I had an experience there where overwhelmingly they kept telling us about, like, here's how you're going to make Jesus your choice. Here's how you can invite Christ into your heart. And they acted out My Heart, Christ's Home, this nice little booklet by Robert Boyd, Boyd Munger. And, and it, it impacted me. But every night when they would invite kids to come forward and accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, I was honestly confused because I did not grow up in a church experience like this. And they kept saying, so are you, you know, when did you accept Jesus? I'm like, accept Jesus? Like what? Like I'm a Christian. I've always been a Christian. I've been saying the creed since the day I was born. I'm here and I am proud. (laughs) And they were like, no, no, you have to have like a date. So, right. So every night they would kind of try to encourage everybody to walk forward. And I have a spiritual gift of stubbornness. And I will not do what you ask me to do. So I was not going to walk forward. And I was not going to do that as part of Big Crown. I was also Lutheran. We're part of the Frozen Chosen. So I'm not going to do those things. But I did have a quiet time every day, which was a new experience to try to think about what do you do when you're alone with God? And as a 10-year-old kid, I sat at the corner of these two lines on this tennis court because I thought green's my favorite color and I liked lining up my bony knees to make sure that they could fit right on the white lines. And I sat at the corner there and opened up my Bible and I started to read and all of a sudden I felt like God was there. And that it wasn't an entirely new thing. I'd always known God loved me and, and that Jesus was present in my life. But I kind of had this moment where I was like, oh, I am not in charge. And that was the moment where even with my spiritual gift of stubbornness, that kind of laid aside. And I remember feeling like I could see a little kid. I could see myself sitting at that corner. And I can still picture that in my head. Seeing this little kid sitting there with her Bible open and saying, okay, I'm not in charge anymore. You get to be in charge. And that was a a moment in my life amongst many moments where I don't know the date and I didn't get like a, I didn't walk forward still. And I probably, I don't even think I told anybody, but I had that moment where I was like, I'm not in charge anymore. And I remember going home and my mom picking us up in the Dodge caravan with the wood paneling and driving home from, from Santa Cruz and being so excited. You ever know that feeling when you first really made that personal investment into your relationship with God, where it, it does take hold. Christ did come and make his home in my heart. And I just was super excited about it. And I was like, oh my goodness. I was telling my mom all this stuff. Did you know this? And did you know this? Did you know this? And my mom and her good Lutheran self was like, whoa, (laughs) we sent her to a cult. Oh dear. Right. And I kept reading and reading and reading and telling her, and she kept saying things like, you know, this is something we do on Sundays. We don't do it all week long. And I was like, oh, I think I'm going to do this all week long. And overwhelmingly continued to pursue that experience and that relationship with Jesus that I did really feel like Christ was making his home more and more in my heart. 
And I kept looking for other people that would get excited about this with me. And because we're the frozen chosen in the Lutheran church, there weren't a lot of people that were really excited about that with me. I started finding um, Christian music, which I didn't know existed prior to my experience at that camp. I didn't know that there was a Christian bookstore prior to that experience. I, I just listened then at that point to, what do you guess? Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith. That was it. That's all we had. Um, lots of angels watching over me. Anyone? Right? <laughs> Okay, I can sing the whole song forward and backwards over and over again. Friends are friends forever, all of it. And that was like the taste of a non-Lutheran Christian experience. And I started bringing that all into my Lutheran church. And my pastors were super sweet about it. And I was very concerned that Petra might be of the devil. So I um, made them listen to the Hard Rock Petra album to make sure. And they were like, if you like this kind of music, you are welcome. We will not be playing it at church. But you are still welcome to listen to it on your cassette tape. So I did that. And in all those moments, I started thinking, I got to get my life together. I was approaching 13. You know, I, my mom had had me in the PSAT since I was in fifth grade. So I was like, I got I to gotta figure this out. And I'd had a conversation with my dad, like, what do you do for a living? And he said um, that he hated his job. So I thought, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to hate my job. So I, I made a list of all the things that I love to do. And it was things like, I love to go to church, and I love to volunteer in the nursery, and I like to help at the homeless shelter, and I like to tell people about Jesus, and I like to study the Bible, and I like to do all these things. I like to sing. I was like, oh, my pastor gets to do all of these things. I will be a pastor. So I started announcing to everybody that I will be a pastor. My mom was deeply disappointed because, again, cult. Um, and so, like, this is something we do on Sundays, not all day of week, but fine. And then um, I called my very religious family that had sent me to the camp, right? And they said, I said, hey, I'm going to be a pastor. And they went, oh, you can't do that. You are a woman. And so you are not permitted to be a pastor. And I was like, hmm, that doesn't sound right because we have a female pastor at the Lutheran church. Went back to the Lutherans, and they were like, oh, yeah, you can tell me about pastor and we're going to help equip you to have this debate. Here's what's going on in Ephesus and let's tell you about the cult of Artemis. So all of that at age 13, then debating with kids on the bus on the way to junior high. And I remember saying to this one boy who went to a very conservative Christian church in the area and he was like, you can't be a pastor. I was like, does your mom braid her hair? Does she wear jewelry? Well, then let's talk about consistency in the book of Ephesians. And we're going to discuss what the apostle Paul is really doing and saying there. So It was a transformative moment. I'm very glad that I was part of the Lutheran church. Again, though, I couldn't find a lot of people that felt the way I felt about Jesus. That then would also let me fully participate in all of my personhood and gender and leadership call. So it was a a bit of a lonely journey until I went to college And at college, I eventually found this church called Beller Presbyterian Church. And they had a very vibrant and thriving college ministry. And when a new college student walked in, it was like sharks and minnows. Anybody ever been to a young adult college ministry? So uh, I got asked out very quickly uh, because I was just the new person there. (laughs) And um, I got invited to a concert for Stephen Curtis Chapman. I did not know who that was, but I said yes because it sounded fun. And while I was there at the Great Adventure concert with Stephen Curtis Chapman, anyone? Okay, it was the 90s. You might not have been alive yet or born, some of you, but um, he sang a song called My Heart's Cry. 
And in that song, the lyrics go, this is my heart's cry to know the one who saved me and gave me life. This is my heart's cry. And he continues to sing this song. And I sat there hearing it for the very first time in that context, sobbing. I was like, there's another person that feels the way I feel about Jesus. And they wrote a song about it. And all these other people know the words to this song, and I might not be alone. And it turned things for me. So I decided to intern for a summer at another small Lutheran church, this little Lutheran church in Millbrae. And I actually didn't decide God shoved me there. Has that ever happened to you? So I sent out letters from Southern California. This is before the internet, you guys. Okay, we didn't know what that was yet. Uh, We didn't even have pagers yet. I had a car phone that was so large, it could not fit underneath the seat. No one? It was a brick. You screwed the antenna on it? Okay. My parents were deeply concerned about me living in LA. So so I sent out letters on on an afternoon, and I wrote to every Presbyterian and Lutheran church I could find in the Milbrae, San Bruno, Burlingame area, San Mateo, anywhere around there. Because that's where my grandparents lived in Milbrae. And I wanted to go and live with them for the summer. And I thought, I'll get an internship or summer. No one wrote back. But the next day, I mean, I sent it in the mail that day. I got a phone call from this church, the pastor at this church. And, they, and he said, got your letter, like within under 24 hours from LA to Northern California. Got your letter. We'd love for you to come. I'm going on vacation for the summer, so I won't be here. You would be here with the secretary. We can't pay you. It's not senior high, it's junior high. Um, would you like to do that? And I had prayed, God, I'll go to the first church that calls me. So I got off the phone and hung up and said, God, I'll go to the first church that calls me that can pay me. (laughs) So I changed the prayer and then no one called. No one called. So then I started, they didn't even call to invite me. Like, oh, sorry, we don't have anything for you, but we'd love for you to come and join and volunteer. Nothing. Crickets. So I started calling them. Hey, uh, First Press Burlingame, do you? No. I mean, they were like rude on the phone. I was like, oh, they didn't even invite me. Not that they were, I was like, God was shoving me. So I ended up getting to this little tiny church. The pastor gave me 50 bucks petting cash for the summer. And, um, and I started a junior high ministry. I did not know what I was doing. And just in case you were wondering, I was 19. So um, I really did not know what I was doing. The first day I had my youth ministry event, I didn't, again, know what I was doing. So I scheduled a junior high event that went for five hours. I was the, yeah, I was the only adult this church is lovely. It does not have a parking lot. So there's no yard. Yeah. So we'd walk to the park. All the really fun youth ministry activities I had scheduled went awry very quickly. And the kids mutinied. You know, they have the gift of organizing. So they uh, attacked me. Uh, like in all every game, I said, let's, let's do the shaving cream game. And they're like, no, we're just going to get you really full of shaving cream. Instead, my watch got set forward an hour in the chaos, my little digital like Casio watch. And I was like, oh, thank God it's almost over. So we walked back to the church where then we still had an hour before the children came. And I was trying to get them to do like a get to know you game. They knew that I had lost. They just knew. So they were like, no, we're not going to do that. And they started jumping off the choir loft into the sanctuary over and over again. And I'm doing one of these, like, come on, you guys, can you just please, 
please, you guys, please just sit down. They're like, no. And they just, I could just hear the thump over and over and over again. So I sat down in the youth room in Melbourne and the windows were open. And I was like, oh my gosh, this was the worst mistake of my life. I should never have done this. I'm an idiot. What was I thinking? I should just go back to pre-law. I should never have done this pastor thing ever. Like, this is a bad idea. And I just prayed. I said, God, if you don't send your Holy Spirit here right now, it's not happening. I'm leaving tomorrow. Today is my last day, first and last day. And I finished praying and I opened my eyes and this white, not this white dove, but a white dove. We didn't have phones yet on our phone. No cameras on our phones yet. Um, we didn't have phones, not phones that we held in the pocket. Um, a white dove was sitting in the windowsill and I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. God, like we're, you know, right near the San Francisco airport. If you have the time to alert a little white dove to come and sit and symbolize your presence. And I can still in this, hear the thump over and a thump, thump, <laughs> thump, like over and over again. Um, it's like covering over the chaos, right? The dove and the chaos combined right in the moment. I was like, okay, I'll I'll get up and try one more time. And it led to the most amazing summer of my life. And I was hooked. And it was a period of transformation. And God made everything new in that summer. I went back to college and was like, I can't do this pre-law thing. That's not going to happen. I'm so hooked. And I went and worked full-time at Bel Air Presbyterian Church and just jammed myself into ministry and then ended up getting full-time hired on up at Calvary Lutheran Church. And I came up here and then I went to this little college called San Jose Christian College. It used to be in San Jose and now it's William Jessup because it's not San Jose anymore. And there I met this really cute guy. <laughs> and, um, and it was another moment of transformation. And we started hanging out And I was at this point where I had had like a whole bunch of junk happen in my life. And I was like, okay, God, I need like five years of consistent behavior before I will date a person. Um, And he showed up and I couldn't stop talking about him. And my sister and my best friend were joking one day like, gee, do you think Danielle likes Kevin? And I was like, I don't like Kevin. He's just like really great at guitar. And he comes to my youth group and we like hang out all the time. It's really fun. But we're just friends. And then my best friend, who had known me for quite some time and had seen me going through all sorts of madness, came up to visit. She was dying of cancer, one leg, one lung, inoperable tumor on their spine. And I'd watched all these people get really weird around her, you know, for years. And Kevin didn't. He jumped right in. He knew she was the most important person in the room. And he loved on her and served on her in this amazing way. And she turned to me in the middle of her visit. She was like, he is the one. I'm like, really? Okay. So we went... (laughs) After that, then we went on our first date, and three weeks later, we got engaged. I know. And my parents freaked out again. I was in a cult. I'm just joking. And then one weekend when she was feeling good several months later, she wanted to be at the wedding. We would go down on the weekends and take care of her and hang out. We drove to Vegas in the dead of night and, um, and got married at a little white wedding chapel. I just want you to know that we're classy, so we got out the car. And we did not just use the drive-up window. (laughs) And that was 21 years ago. You see, Jesus in my life has constantly been making things new. Things that I did not believe could change or shift in me and others. He kept making things new. And he's still doing that today. The call of Christ in my life, come follow me, has made things new on a regular basis. 
And for me, that personal transformation has continued. I think Kevin and I had been married, well, three, three years or so, three, four years. And we started studying the Bible in a different way, where we started trying to understand the historical and cultural context, which I desperately needed because I did not know what I was doing. Did I mention that I started when I was 19 and the kids could tell that I did not know what I was doing? Um, And and so we started studying and that call, that understanding first century discipleship in the light of Jesus and hearing those words, come follow me, come out of the mouth of a first century Jewish rabbi changed Again, both of us transformed our life forever where we ended up going to Israel and then ultimately living there for a while and studying there for a while and starting a different type of church because of these moments of transformation with Jesus. And the Jesus that we meet, that I meet in scripture is the Jesus that's always making all things new. He shows up to people in story after story after story. And it's like, be healed. The kingdom of heaven is here. And starts to grab the people that have been marginalized for whatever reason. Because of their own choices. Because of the way in which the society functioned and worked. Because of poor luck. He starts bringing all those people in and starts making things new again. Whether it's for the woman at the well or the man born blind. He starts making all things new. And then when I would watch the life of Jesus, I would start to see this life of service being laid down. And these things started taking hold and changing how I lived. Early on, by the way, the idea from just a little kid that there was an example we should follow that meant you considered others better than yourselves. That you laid your life down in service for one another. That we would someday pick up our cross, deny ourselves in order to follow him. That Jesus would say things like, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? That shifted me. That transformed me. That made something shift again into something new. Where I knew at that point that there was nothing else that I was going to find in this world that would be worth it. That would be worth losing Jesus over. Everything else was going to fall to the wayside. When my parents were deeply concerned about my choice to leave what was going to be a much more um, well-paying job to go into pastoral ministry and then to marry a pastor, like, oh, good, they'll just both be poor. Um, And I understand it as a parent. I totally get it. Just pick the thing that'll put some food on the table. Um, I remember talking with my mom and saying, but I don't have a choice. It's, it's like burning in me to do this thing and I'm compelled to do it. And I can't, I can't not do it. And I felt bad saying it because I understand why it sounds crazy. But it was because of these teachings of Jesus. It was because I started to watch in the gospels as they would unfold that the life of Jesus was about covenant and about finding victory over the things of this world that seemed to hold an end, that seemed to have the final word. But instead, in Christ, we found this ultimate victory over death, over the tomb, over sin in our lives, that our covenant together changed how we lived. That would watch Jesus in the Gospels over and over again run and find the lost and beg them to come home. 
I would think, I want to do that. I want to be with him when the people get to know how deeply they are loved. I was lost too, and I still want to be found. And overwhelmingly, it's been the love of Jesus, the love of God in my life that has shifted and changed everything and how I walk around this world. I just walk around like I am deeply loved by the Father. I mean, the audacity. The audacity to walk around and be like, (laughs) the Father's just really fond of me. And you too. And we can see the image of God in one another because that's just how God works, that God so deeply and desperately loves us. It's one of the reasons why I love the story of the woman who anoints Jesus. Let's read it in Luke chapter 7, 36 and on. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. is not that an interesting phrase? He is a prophet, and he does know. And he is doing exactly what the prophet should do. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. He wants to learn. This Pharisee wants to learn. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender, and one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. You see, this woman had this encounter with Jesus, and she was made new. Notice that she loves him that way before he has forgiven her sins. There's something in Jesus that compels and draws us. Maybe it's simply that he first loved us. And she knows that. But she gives that worship and that expression of love without any guarantee of fire insurance. Jesus hasn't died on the cross. He hasn't risen again. He hasn't forgiven her sins. He hasn't proclaimed her clean. She just sees him and and loves him and is compelled to respond to the great love he has for her with love herself. Her courageous act testifies to the massive transform, transformation she has experienced as a result of her relationship with Jesus. Do we do that too? Do I do that too? We're all in this room on a Sunday afternoon, evening in Silicon Valley with probably most of the Valley thinking they were a little bit nuts for being here. And we're here because we've been transformed, because something has happened in us. We've come to taste a bit of that transformation. And we're not in this room because we're concerned about where we're going to go. 
We're in this room because we're in love with the Savior. We're in love with Jesus. We love watching, or maybe we just have questions about it and we're wrestling with it. And all of that is okay. Because the truth is, even if somehow there was some clerical error, right? And Peter forgot my name. I'm not saying this is a thing. I'm just pretending for a second, right? I still want to be in this room. I still want to be following this rabbi, this savior forever because I've been transformed. I'm not doing it because of something I'll get someday. I'm doing it because of the right now, the right here, because I've experienced the resurrected person of Jesus in my life and it's changed me. He's made all things new. Now we tend to, in the church, embrace all the stories of transformation and we're like, yes, that's a great story, but we do it pre-conversion. And then we expect that once the conversion has happened, all of those difficulties and struggles will go and stay out, right? And nobody is allowed to tell a post-conversion story of how you've been struggling or messing things up. Anybody? Is that true? But the Gospels tell a very different story than that, don't they? You see, Peter, the night Jesus was betrayed and was being tortured, was asked, hey, don't you know him? Three times, Peter denies knowing Jesus. And Peter has pre- Jesus has predicted this, hasn't he? That before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter has this post-conversion experience, if you want to call it a conversion. He's been following Jesus for three years. He's had this incredible experience, and he still denies Christ in the darkest hour. But then there's this really lovely story at the end of John. Several years ago, Kevin and I walked from Nazareth to Capernaum. It's like a four or five day walk. And we spent the night right at the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, As we were in the tent in the middle of the night, I don't know if you, you know, camping, I'm not like a normal camper. So we're in this, you know, we're in another land and we're sleeping on the shore of a tent in the middle of the dark in the night. And there's critters and you hear things, but you're like, it's cool. You know, I'm being like Jesus. You're a little nervous. Um, and I started hearing this really loud. I was like, oh my gosh, what's happening? It's quiet. And I looked out the tent and there were fishermen out in the middle of the night slapping the water. They had a light up there and they were slapping the water to scare the fish in. And they were doing this ancient fishing technique, exactly the one described at the end of John. Kevin, 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 wake up. <laughs> My favorite Kevin pictures. Another moment of transformation. We watched the story unfold in front of us and remembered that Peter, in his denial, was not left in his worst moment. Christ makes all things new. And Jesus shows up on the shore of the Galilee after the resurrection. Peter's back fishing, right? He's like, well, I flunked the discipleship test. That's it. I'm done for that. There's no other hope for me. And he sees Jesus, recognizes it's Christ. Christ is barbecuing by the shore. And um, he finished eating. Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus asked again. Yes, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Do you think that question's interesting? Do you love me? 
Not, hey, are you sorry that you sold me out? Did you apologize for that yet? No. Do you love me? Peter's hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And he says some other things. And he says, now follow me. See, Peter doesn't get to decide that he's disqualified from his call because of his failings. Because Christ makes all things new. And those things happen, those new transformative moments happen, yes, over and over and over again in our lives. Over and over and over again. And I don't know what moment you're in right now that needs that touch of transformation, that needs all things to be made new. But I want you to know that Jesus is inviting you to the next step. And I hope we just keep saying yes to God's invitations. And wherever you're at along that journey, whether you're just growing up in the church or you're the 10-year-old kid having a decision moment on her own or you're questioning your vocation or you're having a lot of self-doubt or you're meeting the spouse of your dreams and then it's hard because marriage is hard or you're exploring those next things or, or if Jesus is sort of allowing you right now to, to lose the things that have constructed him in front of you that are obscuring who he really is. And that's that deconstruction of your faith can feel a little bit unnerving and a little frightening, but it's a moment of transformation and hope. We're being invited once again to come meet the Jesus of the gospels who says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Cause I love you. And you're invited to the next yes of the moment. Jesus is making all things new. Why Jesus? Well, for me, one of the many reasons is because second chances are unlimited because every day is a new beginning because sins are forgiven. We are made new again and all can be transformed. Why Jesus? Because he is making all things new. He's making you and me new again and again and again. He's the God of transformation and the God of hope. He's making us new. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table. This is his body, his blood, his covenant, his table, and he invites us all. And all of us are being made new. The table is open. Please stand if you are able for a benediction. To all of you sparkers who are here and for all of you present, may you in this moment and even throughout this week experience the Jesus that is renewing your life and your soul, your mind, your spirit all over again. And may you embrace the newness of that life for a whole new experience, 
for a whole new joy, for a whole new sense of purpose and meaning and identity in this world. Be blessed. Be loved. Be loved. Amen.